I'm Monica Lopez, and this is Making Contact. Since the Muslim ban was announced, our office and care offices across the country have received calls from hundreds of concerned travelers. Many of them have actually been U.S. citizens and green card holders who, though not targeted by the Muslim ban itself, are very afraid of traveling abroad and then getting stuck. Nisrin Abdelrahman was in flight when President Trump signed his first immigration ban. A Stanford PhD student in anthropology, Nisrin was returning to the U.S. from her fieldwork in Somalia. What do you think, Dad? Should I go? And he's like, you know, I think it's just better be uh, safe than sorry. He was like, I think, you know, you should go. My name is Nisreen Al-Amin Abdurrahman. Um, I am a PhD student here at Stanford in anthropology. I'm originally from Sudan, um, but I'm also a green card holder. I'm a permanent resident. I've been living in the U.S. for 24 years. We started hearing about this possibility of a Muslim ban and this executive order that might get signed. Trump put a temporary ban on travelers from Sudan and six other Muslim-majority countries from entering the U.S. And my father and I were in this, like, very small house in this, like, working-class neighborhood in Khartoum and glued to the TV watching CNN trying to figure out what's going to happen. I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. On the day that we heard that this was going to get signed, I decided probably within the span of an hour that I was going to get the next flight out. We only want to admit those into our country who will support our country and love deeply our people. Finally get on this flight. Late at night, I barely had enough time to say goodbye to my immediate relatives. Didn't get to say goodbye to any of the people that I've been living with in my field research sites. Even like my goodbye to my parents was really rushed. And it's like those moments when you're like, my father's 80. You know, he's healthy, alhamdulillah. But at the same time, it's like, I don't really know when I'm going to see him again. So I just kind of like didn't think about that. And I just like got on the flight. And when I got on the flight, I just started crying because... It's like, you know, it just felt really strange to not know when I was going to see them again. I was born in Germany. My father um, was studying in Germany, and I grew up for part of my life in Germany. So I actually never lived in Sudan. I mean, I've gone back and forth to Sudan when I was a child, and really I'm kind of like a, a child of of the world and, you know, moved around a lot, lived in different places. My parents moved back to Sudan a couple of years ago. And so doing my field research was actually really timely because I got to spend time with them. Growing up, I actually didn't get to spend that much time with my, my family. So we've been sort of always far away from each other. I was in a, a boarding school in Germany. I was, a, you know, on a scholarship there. Had a hard time. You know, I was one of the few black students in the school there was a lot of xenophobia at the time because the Berlin Wall had just fallen recently. You know, as these economies were integrating, a lot of people were unemployed and they blamed it on foreigners and we were having immigration issues. You know, I was like 13 or 14 and I started reading Roots and then I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and I just started thinking about how it might be to be somewhere where there are 
like many other people like me. And I'd, so that sort of just went to my head that I wanted to come to the U.S., but my parents didn't have the money to send me, so I kept applying to the sister school of the school that I was in and then eventually got in and, and got a scholarship as well. That was actually the boarding school that Ivanka Trump went to. The flight attendant announced my name and said, you know, your connecting flight is departing very soon. Since we're arriving late, please make your way up to the front. At this point, I'm wearing like full hijab, you know, coming from Sudan. I'm trying to, you know, saying, excuse me, can I get through? And there's this man, British man with his kids, who decides to block me from getting to the front. And I was like, excuse me, I really need to go and, you know, catch this flight. And he said, yeah, we're all waiting for flights. You're just going to have to wait. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry, sir, but I really need to get on this flight. He was like, we all really need to get on this flight, like, you know, on our whatever flights. You're just going to have to wait. And he just kind of looked at me and just refused. He literally, like, did, you know, physically kind of blocked me from leaving the plane. In his head, he doesn't realize, like, I, I really need to get on this flight. Like, it's not just like I'm going to miss getting to work on time. Like, I really need to get on this flight. And he just, there was no empathy. I mean, probably also no understanding of my situation. I don't know. But I also felt in that moment that he's looking at me as a Muslim woman. And, and you know, actually what I thought about, too, is his child, you know, his son was there and he was looking at me. Like, what lesson are you teaching your son? Get to the flight and the person says, you know, I'm really sorry. Had you gotten here two minutes earlier, you would have gotten on this flight. So I actually know that had the man let me through, I probably would have been on that flight and none of this would have happened because I then had to wait for another three hours to get on the next flight. Growing up in Germany in the late 1980s, early 90s, I was like obsessed at the time with like Prince and Michael Jackson. We didn't see very many people who looked like us resisting. Um, I was really interested in the civil rights movement and like the Black Panther Party and... There was something about it, I think, that helped me deal with being a black person living in Germany and dealing with racism. You know, I'm going through security and they're like, oh, you know, you've been selected, like randomly selected for searching. And usually it happens before you get to the gate, but this is after. So the other person who was with me was Afghani. So we were both kind of joking between us, like, okay, random selection, like the Afghani and the Sudanese, you know. So I finally get on this second flight, I couldn't sleep because I was really nervous. Because at this point, I had seen on Facebook somebody post um, about the fact that the order had been signed. So I knew on the plane that this order had been signed. I mean, I saw that and I was like, this is what I was trying to avoid. The seven countries on this list have all been, the lives of people in these seven countries have all been impacted by U.S. policy, U.S. military intervention, U.S. sanctions. And so we think of them as these enemy nations, but we don't really think about, on a day-to-day basis, how are ordinary people being affected by these policies in terms of, like, how they're making ends meet. You know, these are all people who, like, you know, get up in the morning and send their kids to school. Like, they're just like anybody else that you, you and I know. On the one hand, I love Sudan, and I love, you know, obviously my family who's there. And on the other hand, this regime, which has been in power since 1989, has been extremely repressive. Especially in, in parts of Sudan that are marginalized, there are ongoing wars, people are being killed on a daily basis. 
I have seen just over the last five years in my own family, people go from having three meals a day to now having like one and a half meals, essentially. By the time I got on the flight, I think I hadn't slept in like 36 or maybe 48 hours. I was really tired, but I just couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even like watch a movie. I was just, I was in my head rethinking some of these, processing some of these feelings that were coming up for me. I, and I could barely eat too. I get to the airport around 10 in the evening. There's a citizenship and permanent resident lane that I'm, I'm allowed to go in. So I go in and put my green card in this machine and there's this paper that comes out. And if it's a tick, then you just move through. So I was like really hoping that it would come out with a green tick and there was an X through it. And I remember the day, you know, I got my green card, we had like a spontaneous party in my office. Finally, I'm not going to have to ever deal with this again, you know. Still, obviously, I'm traveling on a Sudanese passport, so I still had to deal with visas. But like everything got a lot easier after that. Once I had my green card, I physically felt different. There was like this burden that was lifted off my shoulders. I remember the first time I traveled with a green card and the officer said, welcome home. And I almost started crying because it was like this moment of, wow, like I've never actually heard someone say that to me. You know, it's always like, oh, I'm sorry, I need to bring you to this area for further questioning. And so in that moment, I was just like, I'm back to this? You know, after so long, just that fear, that anxiety, even that holding area, I'd been in that area many times before. I'd been questioned many times before. I handed him my green card and he looked at it and he said, can I have your passport? He looks at the passport and he says, okay, just, you know, sit tight for a minute. And he goes to a supervisor who was standing on the corner. My green card actually says Germany on it. And at first the supervisor said, well, you just process her like a normal green card holder. And then as he was literally, as he was walking back, the person called him back and said, wait a minute. Um, actually, you need to ask her to go in for further questioning. Wow. Like, I actually, again, like if I had gotten here maybe 20 minutes before, I could have just gone through. And the first part of the questioning was fairly familiar. Where are you coming from? What were you doing? The educational institutions I had gone to, the languages I speak. He asked me about all the countries that I've been to. And so I started, you know, listing the countries that I'd recently been to. And he was like, no, like in your entire life. The officer told me, I don't know much about Sudan. So um, I want to hear you talk about the situation in Sudan. Like talk to me about the political situation in Sudan. Because then he started asking me about whether or not I knew of radical groups in Sudan, you know, whether I knew people who had radical views. And he was taking notes. At some point, he came back to me and asked me for my social media handles. Then at some point, they were getting tired. It was like maybe one or two in the morning at, the, at this point, and they needed to shut down that terminal. So they had to transfer us to another terminal. We then sort of got handed over to the Customs and Border Patrol folks who, you know, didn't know anything about us. So these two women officers led me into a room and they told me to put my hands against the wall and to spread my legs. And then they did a body pat down and it was really uncomfortable, actually. And then they said they had to handcuff me because they were transferring us from this terminal to the other terminal that was a 24-hour terminal since they still didn't know what was going to happen to us. And knew that at that point, if I'm getting handcuffed, even if they're saying, oh, we don't know what's going to happen to you, we're getting led into this van like that I could end up in a detention center. So I started crying. And the woman who handcuffed me was a black woman. 
I saw her visi- like visibly like react to me crying. And it was like an interesting moment because the other officer who was there with me, who was not black, was like cold face, no reaction. I mean, I was literally shaking. Like I hadn't cried like that in a while just because I was scared. And you know, so they were going back and forth and then eventually the handcuffs came off and we were in the car together. Like she was still really shaken by it. And I like leaned over to her and I said, you know, it's okay. Like I knew you were just doing your job. No. Because um, I don't know, it's just like this. I felt like it was in a way a weird moment where we were both like dehumanized. I could just see like there was just something in her that was like, you know, where she connected to to my like sense of fear and like was empathetic to that. You know, I think this historical moment is obviously generating a lot of extreme feelings in people including in this person, and, and I think there's this fear that then gets projected onto people like me. When we talk about this is necessary to keep our country safe, when you ask black people in this country that question, historically, when have black people had the right to feel safe in this country? It just makes me angry because I just feel like it's dehumanizing to be told, like, what you went through was, is, needs to happen to keep our country safe. Who has the right to feel safe and who doesn't? So then, you know, we got transferred to this other 24-hour area and there were other people who were being let in, like an Iranian and an Iraqi citizen, who they were in handcuffs too. Um, and, you know, it's like this, one of them was just like, like a nerdy Iranian PhD student who was just, I felt like, I felt his pain because he was just like, what the hell is going on? You know, he's like there to go study with this professor at Cornell for a couple of months and had a visa, you know, and was just like really confused. And there was this other Iraqi man whose wife and child were waiting outside for him. And he, I think, had been waiting forever for a visa to get reunited with them and just feeling all of those emotions in that room was like really intense, you know, and I was trying to help him translate, but the officers wouldn't let me. And I felt like in that room, we were really treated more like criminals than in the previous holding area. And it was like, we couldn't sit next to each other. We couldn't talk to each other. Um, none of us were brought food and we'd been in there for a couple hours. At some point I asked if I could eat my sandwich and they said yes, but it had to be like in plain sight. And this is, by this time it's like three in the morning. They call you up, not by your name, but they're like, Sudanese green card holder. So I I walk up, and then he says, um, there was some paperwork that he was signing. He was looking at a computer screen, and they got a message, I guess, telling them that they could let me go. Because nothing, and he said, quote-unquote, derogatory came up in the system against you, which I'm assuming means there's no criminal record and the interview didn't raise any red flags. But he said, if I were you, I wouldn't travel unless, like, you want to go through this whole thing again. And then he just, like, handed me my passport and was like, you're free to go. And I was, like, looking around, like, is like, for real? Like, I'm free to go? And I just, like, grabbed my passport and, like, ran out, you know? And I don't know, I was, like, so full of adrenaline and so happy to be let out that um, I didn't even, like, really fully process what had happened. I just I went to my mailbox today and I got this letter... 
I can read it, I guess. Um, Dear Muslima, I'm terribly sorry you were inconvenienced on returning to the U.S., but recognize that you come from a country, Sudan, that was designated as long ago as 1993 by the State Department as a sponsor of terrorism. Recognize also that Americans don't owe you anything and that you're fortunate to be here receiving an education. Coincidentally, I've been to Sudan, a shitty hole run by a maniac, Khartoum stank of piss and most likely still does, but I have no trouble getting Johnny Black at prices even lower than what one generally finds in Cairo. Like I always say, if you want a ready supply of whiskey, go to an Islamic Republic. The next time you fly on a jet or use a computer or a smartphone, won't you take a moment to encant a prayer for the poor, maligned white man? After all, you live in a world that he made. And it was signed and, you know, address on it and everything. Anyway, it's just, I just got it like a couple minutes ago, so. <laughs> I mean, I've gotten my share of like hate mail, like through Facebook and email. And, you know, for every like hateful message that I've gotten, I've gotten probably five to ten messages of support and love. And people say to me, you know, like, I'm glad you're the one who's speaking. This Land is Your Land by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we continue our coverage of Donald Trump's executive order, we're joined uh, by Nisreen El-Amin, a Ph.D. student. My uncle, he's 98. I was on the you know front of the newspaper in Sudan, too, and he clipped all of the like newspaper articles and like listened to the Democracy Now! interview, and he said, you know, um, like she speaks in a way that people have to listen. There, there's a way in which my dad said, you know, they hit the wrong person. They thought probably, you know, this like barely five foot tall, you know, Sudanese woman was going to keep her mouth shut, but my daughter's not going to keep her mouth shut, you know. So there's that. I mean, I've been an activist all my life. I, I'm used to speaking out against injustices. Chaos at New York's JFK International Airport. Hundreds of people protested the detention of at least a dozen travelers, including Harvard graduate and PhD candidate at Stanford, Nizrin Elamin, who told us by phone about being handcuffed and detained. I felt a lot of shame and guilt, actually. You know, I think shame around the fact that I have a lot of privilege that a lot of people who have been put in this position don't have, right? Just being being a green card holder, being someone who, you know, is affiliated with Stanford, uh, you know. Um, I'm sure even actually in my detention, there's a way in which I got treated better than other people who didn't, who couldn't pull, you know, that affiliation out. What happened to me is something that happens on a daily basis to people coming through borders. Um, what was exceptional about it is that I have a green card. So, you know, and of course, and I was one of the first people to be detained under the order. So there was a lot of media attention on my, on my story. I was at a teach-in yesterday. One of the panelists with me is, is a Japanese-American man who's 83 years old. Um, he was talking about uh, his internment as an eight-year-old. He was interned for two years in Colorado. After I spoke, he held my hand and he said, you know, he said he was really proud of me for, like, speaking out. And he said, you know, I want you to not internalize what they're saying about you because it took me a lifetime to undo, you know, what I internalize as a child. There's, like, a narrowing of belonging that's happening, right? And I think what we need to do as human beings in the U.S. is to broaden that. 
And we have to use that to say, because of our history, we now need to move forward and resist in a different direction. Like, we can't move back, you know? People have, you know, sacrificed so much for us to be at this point, and there's so much still for us to do. Um, and we can't let, yeah, we, we, we can't let people take that away from us. Nisrin's story comes to us from the Stanford Storytelling Project. To hear more of their work or subscribe to their podcast, State of the Human, visit storytelling.stanford.edu. You're listening to Making Contact. Coming up, we'll hear from the director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, San Francisco Chapter. The U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments on the legality of Trump's travel ban on October 10th. The order temporarily restricts the entry of people from six Muslim-majority countries and refugees from all countries into the United States. As it stands, the travel restrictions will lapse on September 24th and the refugee restrictions in late October. I recently spoke with Zahar Bilu, civil rights attorney and executive director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, San Francisco Bay Area chapter. We talked about the effects of the travel ban on people entering the U.S., the reporting of Islamophobic incidents, and what could come of the ban in the Trump administration and in the courts. We are concerned that as various provisions expire, that the Trump administration may seek to expand them and may even potentially attempt to add other countries. This administration campaigned on a promise to ban Muslims from coming into the United States, and so we want to make sure that we're doing everything possible to prevent them from expanding any attempts to ban Muslims. Now, with the court itself, we are optimistic that the court will agree with now countless lower courts who have said that the ban is illegal, that the ban is discriminatory, and that the ban is not something that the president should be able to implement. At the same time, we know that these fights have to happen in the courts, but also in the streets and in the court of public opinion. And so while we're organizing and working with the litigators who are going to be arguing the case in the Supreme Court on October 10th, we're also working with community groups across the country to do vigils, rallies, and other awareness events to ensure that our fellow Americans are keeping this top of mind and continuing to push back against it. Since the Muslim ban was announced, our office and care offices across the country have received calls from hundreds of concerned travelers. Many of them have actually been U.S. citizens and green card holders who, though not targeted by the Muslim ban itself, are very afraid of traveling abroad and then getting stuck because maybe the administration will change its mind or make the ban worse, but also because the ongoing changes to the ban as it's been moving through the courts and as the administration has issued several versions have confused people. Specifically in terms of people who have been directly impacted, we've heard from students here on student visas who are wondering if they will be able to visit home for the holidays. Can they go back to Yemen to visit their family? Can they go back to Saudi Arabia? We heard from students who had trouble returning to the United States from winter vacation and from travel that they were doing in January and February. And then we heard from countless families who were stuck at airports. And so some that stood out to me, of course, included people who were delayed for over 24 hours, waiting to just get cleared to exit the airport. There were also people, by the way, at 
John F. Kennedy Jr. Airport in New York the first day the Muslim ban was signed and they were handcuffed and detained. So they weren't just detained, they were actually handcuffed and detained and then questioned about their political beliefs as a result of the Muslim ban. How frequently does that happen, that people are profiled and detained when they're traveling back to the U.S.? I would say that we get complaints about travel delays, detentions, and other concerns at least once a week at the CARE San Francisco Bay Area office this year. Offices with large international ports of entry, like San Francisco International Airport, like Los Angeles International Airport and others, have a higher rate of complaints than regions that don't have large airports there. But it is unfortunately very routine for Muslim travelers to either experience or be fearful of experiencing a delay as they're traveling. We did publish data some weeks, some months ago, that compared 2017 complaints to 2016 complaints, and they were significantly up. A question that we're sitting with, though, is, are complaints up because harassment has increased? In some cases, we know that's true, for example, for people directly impacted by the Muslim ban. But are other complaints up because harassment has increased or because there is more awareness of the need to complain? And that remains an unresolved question. So CARE's been gathering data on civil rights complaints, harassment, and Islamophobic hate incidents. Could you talk about that process and the reporting by victims? We have long compiled complaints of people experiencing civil rights violations and other issues at the CARE offices across the country. We do that by going out into the community and talking about the importance of reporting, but also by providing free legal services to people who experience these civil rights violations. In the weeks that followed the election of 2016, we received over 100 complaints of anti-Muslim hate crimes and incidents across the country. And unfortunately, they haven't ended or even gone away in the months that have followed. We worry that the president's campaign rhetoric and the people he's surrounding himself with in office and the policies that he is putting forward are actually further emboldening white supremacists, racists, homophobes, Islamophobes, sexists, and really everyone that is attacking targeted communities. I know it's hard to make predictions, but do you have a sense as to where you think the administration is headed in light of the deadlines and the Supreme Court hearing? So we worry that the administration will continue on its path of endangering our community members. We see that through connections drawn from the president pardoning Joel Arpaio, threatening to terminate DACA, and now continuing forward with the Muslim ban. So for example, something that is not talked about very often is what we call the backdoor Muslim ban. The Trump administration has put forward policies that would increase the vetting standards for people attempting to get visas to visit the United States. One of the most striking things, for example, that the Trump administration would like to ask people who want to come to the United States is, where have you been and who has funded your travel? On its surface, that sounds like a reasonable question. As it currently stands, individuals applying for visas are required to provide answers for that question going back to five years from the application date. What the Trump administration would like to put forward is requiring people to answer that question for up to 15 years. 
So ask me today as a 33-year-old who funded my travel when I went to Humboldt when I was 20 years old. And I don't remember who went and what went and who paid for it. Now imagine asking that to many, many visa holders or visa seekers. Another example of this is the RAISE Act, which is something that the Trump administration has put forward and is looking for support for in Congress, which would change our immigration system as we know it by awarding points based on things like type and rank of job offered, um, familiarity with English, level of education, and so on. On its surface, it makes sense. You want to know who's coming into the United States, but when you require that people coming in must be fluent in English before they get here, that reads like white supremacy to many immigrant communities that would be targeted. That's it for this edition of Making Contact, The Arrival, Trump's Travel and Refugee Ban. Special thanks to Nisrin Abdulrahman, Hilvia Taina, Anli Herring, Eileen Williams, The Stanford Storytelling Project, and Jake Warga, managing editor of the podcast, State of the Human. I'm your host and this edition's producer, Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.